Hey, everybody. In our interview with Atiyah that you're going to hear today, we get into her history of working since she was 14 and how having a part or full-time job has almost always occurred simultaneously with being a full-time student, musician, and while working internships or running personal projects like her health magazine, Womanly. A sad common factor with many of our other guests that we come across in this interview is that the strain on Atiyah's mental health, a breaking point, is what got her to reassess what her time and abilities were worth. When we think of breaking points for people in their work-life balance, a lot of us may think of someone in their mid to late 30s or 40s going through a culturally classic midlife crisis. Except our guests are talking about hitting a major depressive or exhaustive state in their mid-20s. This feels like the norm, that a lot of us put ourselves through jobs that don't pay or respect us enough for us to feel valued over and over again. New place, the same irreplaceable sense of worth. And so we just continue to take that in, sometimes taking on multiple jobs to maintain a semblance of a livable income, while piling on personal projects to make us feel like we are worth something. Atiyah is grateful to have her magazine, Womanly, as a project she can lead and make sure that everyone that works for her is treated respectfully and given opportunities to grow their skills. She's also thankful that she's given freedom in how she gets work done and respected for her abilities at the job she currently has at Planned Parenthood. It shouldn't be such a battle to feel okay with the various work we do and what it's worth to ourselves and others. But hey, capitalism. All right, let's start the episode. I'm Carolyn. And I'm Adesola. And this is Creatives on Deck, an interview-style podcast where we talk to creatives who often find themselves working in two worlds, in their artistic endeavors that make them thrive, and the service jobs that not only fund their livelihoods, but teach them about people. And this week, our guest is Atia Taylor. Atia is a Brooklyn-based writer, musician, and content producer. She's the founder of Womanly, the Dorothy, and a member of the Art Department Collective. Her work is rooted in social justice, art, and design to bring inclusive and culturally relevant content to sound, print, and digital realms. She's passionate about building and cultivating communities through journalism, music, storytelling, and research. As a musician, her dream pop songs have a distinct lo-fi sound exploring the loneliness of her youth and the imagination born out of survival. Telling a complex story of navigating shades of grief, the album is a triumphant expansion of minimalist psych pop. Her first single from the album is bright and colorful using analog synths, bass, and drums by Strange Parts bandmate Corey Duncan to present a dance track infused with the layered stories from Taylor's journey through life thus far. So welcome, Atia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How's it feel hearing your bio read out loud like that? You're just like, oh, wow. Impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it definitely is um, interesting. Now I know who I am. And, uh... <laughs> so I guess like, yeah, let's just start with Womanly because that's, I feel like where your energy has been really for the most part and takes up a lot of your time. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, telling us a little bit about what Womanly is and how it started and kind of where you are right now. 
Sure. So Womanly started as a magazine. It was a very scrappy project that I thought of because there were so few images, whether they were on TV or in magazines or in comics or whatever, there were so few images that felt real and relevant to me and my friends and our in our spaces and our communities. So I just I really wanted to contribute to that. And I and I had friends who also felt the same. And they also wanted to make art and tell stories around this. So, you know, I've always been into print and always been in media journalism. So uh, it just kind of made sense for me to build something that was a print magazine, but also an online forum. I had done a blog in college on woman in music and I interned at paper and I was writing for various small publications. So something just kind of clicked. It took a while to get started. Um, we, we were planning for years. And then finally I was working at Planned Parenthood and realized how much people needed this resource. So decided to take off with it pulled in a, a bunch of friends and my community and family said, Hey, I don't have any money, but I do have this cool project and y'all are talented. And I'm, I know that this is something you'd be passionate about. And they were. And so we, we started working on it. 2017, we launched the, um, the website and then our first digital issue came out that September. And since then we've released five print. So six issues total, working on our seventh issue with Micah, the art school in Baltimore. So yeah, it's been a journey. Now we're we're not no longer just a magazine. We're a magazine. We also do events and digital workshops, and we have a residency program. We lost a membership program last year. We're working on a new big resource project right now that's kind of under wraps. But yeah, it's just exploded into this beautiful community of people uh, experiencing health through community. I guess I really didn't say what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's we're, we're we're trying to help people understand and navigate the healthcare system in our country, especially women and non-binary folks, because it's so. First of all, it's just so confusing from beginning to end. Even if you have insurance, um, even if you work in healthcare. It's just so confusing. So we try to make it a little more understandable, like what your num know your numbers and when to get a checkup or when to get a mammogram and you know what deadline it is for signing up for insurance. We just try to make it a little easier and then we pair that information with art to make it even more enjoyable and even more um, fun, just united with with who we are and not just this thing we have to do that we feel that we dread mm -hmm. every month or every year. So that's awesome. That's a long way. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you mentioned paper, Mag, and I know uh, Carolyn got really excited when she saw that when she was reading through your bio. <laughs> uh, how did that, how did working there kind of help you with where you are right now with Womanly? Well, it was brief. I was just interning from when I first moved to New York Right after college, I got the internship and 
it was like very, as you know, like focused on fashion and they had a PR company. I don't know if they still have it, but at the time they had a PR company. So we'd be working at events and doing like very intern stuff, like lugging garment bags across the city and standing with a tray at a, an event. So it was, but it was fun. I learned a lot. I got to go to fashion shows. I got to go to a fashion week event. And it was very New York. And I was very young. So I was like, this is cool. This is where I want to be. <laughs> Unfortunately, I just didn't feel connected enough to the, the content. I wasn't, you know, I love fashion and I'm very much into culture, but it wasn't the right fit for me. I wanted something a little more um, meaningful and just connected to health. So I left the internship. I mean, it ended and got a job really soon after at Planned Parenthood. I was first an uh, executive assistant and then got into research, which is a little more in line with what I wanted to do. But I think what I learned most from paper was how much fun it is to be involved in a magazine, how hard it is to break into that world. And I definitely knew that was what I wanted to do, like that world. I didn't feel like I fit in with that crowd, but that work definitely felt good to me. How did working at paper and knowing what's happened to other print publications that have gone fully online because the cost of print was just becoming too much and seeing organizations like She Shreds turn from being just a publication to a now online, multi-faceted type of thing. How did that play into what you wanted to do with Womanly in terms of going to print or just being online? Well, we are very heavily online. And when we started in 2017, we knew the whole folks are concerned about print and whether it could work or last. And I didn't care. <laughs> I wanted it to be print. I love print. I think people, they, I think it's incredibly useful for folks, especially folks who don't use the internet or don't have access to it. And I think it's beautiful and, and it's an art that needs to continue surviving. So that wasn't ever a thing. Um, I did know that it would be expensive and that we'd have to figure something out. And that's definitely a big part of the decision to make Womanly more than, quote unquote, just a magazine, mm -hmm. more of an organization, because I knew if we made it more impactful, we could get funding. So it wouldn't be based on magazine sales as much as it would be based on people wanting to fund this magazine that is helpful and useful for people in their, in their daily lives. I mean, we do sell magazines, but we definitely don't rely only on magazine sales. Mm -hmm. So that's helpful. We also don't have a lot of ads in them purposely, which I feel like a lot of magazines have relied on in the past. So that made it harder. We don't want people flipping through a health magazine and constantly being distracted by ads. Mm -hmm. We max out at four. We've only ever had three ads in, in, in an entire issue. So if as long as we can afford it and people want it, We'll be doing print. Maybe even if I can't afford it. I'll put it on a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it's going to happen. 
That's actually um, a good point I didn't think about because even with what's happening around the country with vaccine and testing locations, the idea of equal access and how people don't have internet access and uh, like having to phone in to schedule um, a vaccine appointment or like ha having people go door to door. So having that print version of a health magazine is very important, especially for the people you're trying to reach. Yeah, it's definitely important. I think it's and people are realizing preventive health is is a thing now because of COVID. But I was talking to my sister yesterday. My grandma is trying to get her shot, and it's just not that savvy with the internet. Mm -hmm. So my sister's been you know helping her uh, figure that out. But that was the goal. I I just think people who aren't online for whatever reason just get left behind. And so there must be this avenue of a way, you know, people learn in different ways, people enjoy things in different ways. So there has to be this avenue for people to be able to learn something. When I was a kid, I really liked um, Highlights magazine. Yes. And that was a big, that was a big part of Womanly for me was I wanted to sit in the waiting room and do a crossword puzzle or compare the scenes, which one's wrong, Rufus <laughs> <Yes>. and Gallant, <laughs> learn about manners through some silly Goofus and Gallant thing. So it was a big one. I wanted, I wanted adults to have fun too, especially with their health. I think it's just something we, we should try to do and we should be enjoying the experience of taking care of ourselves. Mm. I did not grow up doing that thing. My mom was just like, here, eat this turmeric. It'll be fine. <laughs> like, okay, mom. All right. It's always, it was always based off like voodoo stuff that we grew up with. And she's like, make sure you walk in this way and don't eat this. And if you do this, don't eat in your dreams, whatever that person. I'm like, mom, okay. That's cool. Wow. See, see, yeah. I love those stories. I love those stories because everybody grew up differently and it all mm. impacts the way we tr take care of ourselves now. So we have a lot to learn from one another. My grandma was from the South. I mean, she had some superstitions, but we could, whatever we could afford is what we ate. If, yeah. if there were Vienna sausages, we ate Vienna sausages. If there yes. were Eggo waffles, we ate Eggo waffles. There was no nutrition talk. Oh God. None of that. <laughs> so. Yeah, lots of uh, Bush's baked beans were in my, my yes, home. Yes, <laughs> yes. Lots of cans. I remember yes. the parquet butter. Me and my sister used to draw oh. designs in the toast for it. <laughs> Breakfast. <laughs> so when did you move to New York and why did you move to New York? Yeah, I moved right after college. Well, I got I, in, I had this senior seminar class that I dreaded because the teacher was such a hard ass. Like he mm. was so intense and like wanted us to focus on everything we're doing and not half ass anything. Which at first I thought was, you know, so annoying because it's my last class in college. I'm like, come on, dude. It was like a summer class. And eventually I realized how important it was if I was going to be a writer because I was forced to think about what I was doing and put intention into every sentence. So I ended up, uh, we had a project to choose a place that we might want to intern if we had the opportunity. And it was just for this project, but I chose paper, wrote this cover letter and decided to submit it anyway, because why not? It turns out one of my friends was, you know, working with them at the time. She called in a favor and like they called me for an interview 
ended up getting it, which I did not expect. So before I knew it, I was done college and had this internship that I had to do because like, of course I have this opportunity. Uh, but I was living in Glenside at PA at the time with my mom. So I would, I was commuting to New York and then oh, wow. realized that's too much work. Yeah. So it was, it was hardcore. I mean, going to New York every week was too much. I luckily was able to transfer my job. I was at, a, I was working at Marriott hotel. I like the front desk. And I applied to a ton of hotels and the one in Times Square called me back and I went to the interview and it was so weird because everybody in the interview looked exactly like me. It was like Twilight Zone. <laughs> I was like, what the F? I was like, why are the dudes look just alike and all the girls look just alike? It's weird, man. They're all like medium height. <laughs> like lighter brown skin. I'm like, this is confusing. So <laughs> anyway, I, I interviewed for the front desk position and the guy who worked the valet front desk also wanted to interview me. So I was like, I definitely don't want to work in valet. It's cold. I don't know how to drive. But they were like so intent on me working in this valet department. So they hired me for that. Wow. So I worked outside in the cold <laughs> oh. for three months. Oh, no. In Times Square. <laughs> oh, no. That was my first job. Oh, That's so wild. Geez. That is like a punch in the face of a, like, <laughs> first, like, new yeah. job. And I was working in this department with all these old dudes, and it was just not ideal. Luckily, it was a seasonal job, and I got hired at another Marriott, like, right when that ended. So it all ended up being fine. But, yeah, that was... <laughs> scary um so that was my intro into new york i really you know it was rough but i'm i'm glad for it because it did throw me to the wolves like i got like <laughs> i was living in bed working in times square so wow. my commute was like three modes of transportation every day yeah. uh, it's like a bus to a train to a train or something and <laughs> it, it was rough but i feel like it definitely got me in shape for being a new yorker mm -hmm. which i feel like i am now yeah. <laughs> yeah, nothing like that. Oh my holy fuck. It's a tough no. city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah. do people want to fight you like they do in Philly though? That is my only No. <laughs> no, people No, people in Philly are looking for fights. People in New York are looking to get where they need to go. <laughs> no one as long as you're not in someone's way, you won't get beat up. Just keep going. That's it. Philly oh, is a true. different beast. Oh. It's a whole different beast. <laughs> Speaking of jobs, kind of going more into your history, what what was your very first job? Uh, ever? Yeah. I worked at Rita's Water Ice when I was 14 and on Stinton Ave in Philly. <laughs> Under the table. <laughs> It was like pretty under the table, I think. And yeah, I was this tiny kid. I was 14, barely 14, uh, scooping water ice and water ice and yes. <laughs> pulling pretzels out of the freezer in the garage. Yeah, and serving mistos, <laughs> eating water ice for lunch. <laughs> that was me in my red baggy shirt with the name tag yes 
It gets no more Philly than Rita's Water Ice as your first job. That's oh, true. Yeah. Like you so can true. really just say Rita's, and everyone's like, "Yep." <laughs> <laughs> was there anybody or anything from that first job that kind of still sticks with you? I know it's hard because it's like you were fourteen, but sometimes there are like wild things you learn from your first job when you're that young, where you're like, "All right, people are that bold." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I learned that shit is hard that working is hard and it's never going to not be hard you just have to put up with it like it was Mm. really i think rita's water ice might have been the hardest job i've Mm. ever had and i hated it but i also learned a lot from it like i learned how to interact with customers and i learned you know I, i had to like really break up cold water ice and these giant buckets and in, in like at like 7 a.m. and it was rough but I learned how to be more open I was a very shy kid um very to myself but I wanted to work and I feel like I didn't have a choice you know my family was just like yeah there's a job available you're gonna work <laughs> there's no way around that so and everybody in my family pretty much worked there I mean all my cousins had worked there all of our family. It was like the way, the place you worked when you turned 14. So it was like my rite of passage. <laughs> yeah. So some kids get like parties and, you know, really nice vacations or trips. I get to work at Rita's for my 14th <laughs> birthday. <laughs> that was, that was the consolation prize for me. Was there at least like a known um, secret spot there that just got passed down from family member to family member where it's like if you're having a rough day, just like go to this shelf in the closet and there's like this whole secret stash of like, I don't know, extra candy or something? No, absolutely not. It was like the size of, well, it's probably the size of this apartment. I mean, it was so small. This is like the tiniest place. There was nowhere to hide. It was all fluorescence. And it was freezing all day. So no, so no, you, you got to, if you got to go outside by the parking lot and stand on the side there, you were lucky, but otherwise just do your shift and go home. <laughs> oh God, that parking lot thing sounds, yep. <laughs> what was sort of your history with different jobs, service work from there up to New York? I feel like we're filling in the gaps. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was 14, so I was still in boarding school at the time. So that was my summer job. Um, I didn't work during the school semester until I was 16. And my mom started doing a cleaning service and me and my sister worked there, my cousin. So I'd go home in the evening sometimes from boarding school and on the weekends and clean like banks and medical facilities. And it was awful. I hated it. It was like cleaning restaurants and, and at like 4 a.m. And, you know, being at a, in a bank after dark is weird in the, in the suburbs. So I did that for a while. And then I, it, it ended up being really bad, like a big family thing happened and it was a bad situation. But by that time, I had graduated high school and was going to college and got a job at the Marriott in Willow Grove outside of Philly. So I was working there and I was going to community college at in Montgomery County. I was living at home. And yeah, I mean, I worked in the Marriott and went to Temple after that 
until I moved to New York and transferred to that ballet Marriott. <laughs> so I was there for a while. I was like total, my total at Marriott was like seven years, oh, wow. which is a lot of time. Like in the same position? Most of the time it was, yeah, front desk. Mm. And it was funny because, you know, you'd think for someone working there seven years, it's like, you know, go be a manager or do something else. But every every manager I've ever had knew that I didn't want to do it, that my heart wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they'd never asked me about it. Even if I like would be like, oh, maybe I want to do something else. They'd be like, clearly you don't want to do this. <laughs> I was like the worst front desk person. They were like, you got to smile at you. I'm like, I am not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do this. This is just a means to an end. <laughs> mm-hmm. And of course, I was playing music at the time. So I would like fake sick if I had a show. Yes. Or <laughs> I, I, I think people should take notes here because this is professional level sick, <laughs> sick leave. You cough a few days early. You start you start slow. Yes. You start coughing. <laughs> get the leg. I'm not feeling great. I'm just I'm just not feeling myself lately. Next day a little worse. Next day a little worse. Then the day after, she did say she wasn't feeling well. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! You're playing your show. <laughs> plan ahead folks <laughs> and that's a shame right like that's a shame that we have to do that but you know what i had to do what i had to do exactly. comes in handy when you want to do like some weekend tours too you know you get mm. to take a couple days because you really built it up like nah this is bad yep 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 that was my life up until new york it was like a constant rotation of full-time school and job and music mm-hmm yeah, I was also interning at First Person Arts at that time. It's like a, a open mic storytelling platform in Philly. Mm-hmm. And they were great. I was doing audio recording for them. So I was, as my mom would say, ripping and running these streets. <laughs> and, 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 um, and you were doing girls rock, I was too. burning myself out. And I was doing girls rock. I was burnt out, y'all. I was really not. I was burnt out. I I was not. My mom was concerned. I wasn't concerned. But then, like, I had, like, some mental health stuff. So I had to slow down. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to slow down. I was really like, I got to do everything I can do. Once, yeah. once you start to see, like, some results from some goals, you really just want to add more and feel like you're, mm-hmm. you like, you, like no one can stop you and you're just on mm-hmm. top of everything. Yeah, for sure. How does that flip feel from being someone, working for someone else, working for internships to running your own business? You know, it, it got to be quite difficult. Like, the, the, the further into womanly I get, the harder it is to be an employee, quote unquote, because I just feel, I'm just not one of those people who likes to take orders. I don't like having someone telling me what to do. And I feel really great right now because I work at Planned Parenthood and my boss is just wonderful and understanding. And, you know, she'll give me things to work on, but, you know, she trusts me and doesn't make me feel like I'm some task rabbit or something. Mm. So I really feel good about the work and it feels collaborative. Otherwise it would be a strain for me because I, I'm just one of those people who likes to delegate and really be on top of projects. 
uh, I don't like to be kind of underneath things too much. So it's definitely uh, has um, has caused some friction for me in uh, in jobs before where I felt, you know, like people were, especially as a black woman, there were these, you know, incidents where people felt like they wanted to be the boss of me. Mm-hmm. And I clearly was resisting that. So there would be this friction of, you want to be the boss of me. You'll never be the boss of me. So we have that and we just fight. So, yeah. and I leave. So that's just kind of how it went for a while until <laughs> I found a good fit. <laughs> I was going to say, like, how does feeling like that work when you have Marriott for seven years? And like being front desk means you face a lot of people and a lot yeah. of like crappy people. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, that taught me a lot about different people and different situations and having to say yes and having to say no. I've had my share of brush-ups with management in those scenarios where I had to kind of lie my way out of a situation where I clearly wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. Like when I was supposed to smile or I was supposed to do something that was a weird corporate capitalist performative act that I definitely couldn't do because that's not how I work. So I had to do it. It was it was a lot of maneuver, but it was my job and it was survival at, you know, at that time. I, I don't think I could do that again. But at that point in my life, it, it was great. And I made a lot of good friends there. I mean, I feel like in service jobs, you make the best friends because there's a lot of time mm-hmm. where you're just kind of waiting around and you are, you know, going through a lot of bullshit with people who are also artists and people trying to do other stuff in their lives. So I've met some really amazing people in, you know, at working in hotels and I don't regret it. And I've learned a lot, but it's been a journey to say the least. Mm -hmm. What kind of trust and boundary work did you learn to give yourself from working these jobs? Well, I, you know, I don't don't know if it's trust or boundaries, but I, I definitely knew I needed to get a thicker skin if I was going to be in New York and make it in in the career I wanted to make it in. Because there would be times when people would come in and they'd like destroy me verbally. They'd Mm -hmm. like decide that they were going to take everything they had, all their anger, all whatever they had and like wear me down, whether that was a customer or a manager or whatever. And and a lot of times it it would really tear me up. It would break me down. Mm -hmm. It would hurt. And the same thing would go for relationships and, and, and people who, you know, in my in my life. So there became this thing where I had to build up a lot of uh, solid foundation for my feelings and my emotions. And then it became this imbalance where I was too strong. I was too mm-hmm. hard and I couldn't let anything in or anything past me. I I have now realized, you know, there's there's a balance. But for a, for a while, I was on on that one side where I where I couldn't take it, and then the other side where I was not letting anything in. Mm-hmm. So that ruined a lot of friendships, just as much as the one before. Yeah. So now I feel like I have that balance, but it took time, and I think that's less related to maybe it's related to my life journey, but I think it's just part of growing up mm-hmm. and and realizing that, you know, I was in therapy. I've had a lot of trauma in my childhood. It wasn't going to come easily unless I worked on it and really like looked internally at myself to figure out why I have these imbalances happening. Mm-hmm. So, how did your creative outlets help 
with that writing on your own and the music that you got involved with? That's a good question. I've always kind of felt this connection to music, didn't know how to express it um, until I've gotten way older. But as a kid, I felt like I was just, you know, kind of picking at the surface there, trying to figure out, you know, this connection I had to music. And my grandma was a big clue for me. She had a record player, but I didn't know what a record player was and she didn't have any records. I remember we were watching TV. She'd let us pick songs from that TV channel, The Box. It's pretty uh, old. Remember I love that? that channel. It's like basic cable. <laughs> yeah. It's like what? a basic cable channel 66 or something. And you could like <laughs> buy a song. So we beg her and beg her and she finally let us, but it was only it only had to be songs she liked. So it was like Will Smith Miami or anyway. <laughs> yes. I believe I can yes. fly. Oh my um, god. And it was like, you know, that's the music we got exposed to. But I remember her telling this story one time about Marvin Gaye. I don't know if he showed up on TV or something. Probably one of those commercials were with like the CD compilation of Soul or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. She was like, I cried when he died. <sighs> and I was just like, whoa. Like she felt a connection. My grandma was not emotional. She... It's not because she didn't want to be. She just had, she had a brain aneurysm when she was in her 40s and it just changed her. Mm. I didn't get a lot of that out of her. I wanted stories and I, I didn't get as many stories as I wanted. But she saying that was was like, wow. I, I definitely felt like she had a connection to music too that maybe I didn't know about. Maybe mm. to cry over a, a celebrity death, it, it, it's important. It, yeah. it means that they touched you in a certain way. And, and Marvin Gaye, obviously, is, is an incredible musician and has very touching music. But it, it meant something to me. I do remember a moment, like a, a like really defining moment, where she said I had a nice voice. And that was really important. Like, that was, like, very validating for me. Because I felt like all I was trying to do was, like, feel like this meant something. Mm-hmm. That what I was doing was important to me. Yeah. And that somebody noticed that. And she said that like one time. My grandma was not emotional. She barely mm-hmm. talked to us. If it wasn't like go to bed, go to school, go eat. Yeah. And she said that. And I was like, I think that was like really one of those moments where I was just like, oh, that that means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. That means a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have really interesting stints of writing like in college, I wrote a lot about my childhood and I had a lot more time on my hands then because I didn't, I wasn't working a lot. I was part-time work and going to school. So I was writing music at night and I was in my feelings. I feel like every 19 year old is like, <laughs> oh, once yeah. you like get that consciousness, you're like, holy crap, my life sucked. Up <laughs> and every person in it sucked. Everything just sucked. Yes. And so I was writing about that. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) And then it became more romantic in my life. Like, I I wasn't very into boys or anything until, like, later. So I got into, you know, a relationship and and kind of, like, lived through some stuff. Was writing with strange parts. Mm -hmm. And that was in the middle of a lot of things. So... I'm really proud of all the things that came out of that. And it was like very collaborative with Corey and um, kind of 
fly by the seat of your pants writing. And now the new album I have coming out is really reflective of all of this shit. So it's like the writing over the last 10 years, but also a lot of like my my early years and, and, and going through some mental health issues early on in college and just kind of putting a nice pretty bow on that part of my life um, now that I'm 30 and like pretty much pass a lot of that stuff. So it's nice to kind of tie that off and say, here's this nice package of art about my life up until now. So I hope the art that I get to make now, especially after this crazy pandemic, will be something to something different, but something to kind of commemorate this point on. Mm-hmm. How do you feel with everything wrapping up since that has been a major part of your life for so long? I feel good because I really like the album. I like it a lot. I think it's so reflective of everything I've wanted my music to be mm. since I've started writing music. And I'm in such a new, exciting and refreshing, healthy place in my life mm-hmm. that it's nice to just look at it as a thing of the past, a thing yeah. that, you know, I'm not still going through most of that stuff. I'm, I, it's just so the timing of it all is is very interesting to me because you know 20s are fun but there's still a lot of bullshit in your 20s yeah that you don't realize until you get to your 30s you're like wow i yep. was going through some stuff there yes um i put myself through things and people put me through things and emotionally i think romantically you're just kind of finding your stride mm-hmm. so i'm glad i had the opportunity to figure out who I was and what I wanted for myself in those years. But yeah, on to the next chapter and who knows what's next. I want to like also like get into your new projects that you're working on right now. So you, which <laughs> you came out with a Dorothy and I think I like literally I saw it and I was like, do you sleep? <laughs> I sent you a message just like, when? Yeah. <laughs> when do you actually sleep? It's ambitious and it's, but it's like, I can't not do stuff like that. I just felt like with Womanly, it was becoming creatively, I wasn't able to be fully there operationally. Mm. I wanted something where I could really just share my love for wacky design and music and everything that I love. I just wanted kind of a diary. So it's really just my like fun project to to talk to my friends who make music and share Mm. cool art projects going on. And it's not really meant to be super serious but it is meant Mm -hmm. to be a catapult for future productions because I am really interested in making documentary style productions telling stories about mostly women in health and just collaborating with really talented people because I know so many um through art and not all that doesn't always fit in with womanly so I just needed that to set that up for myself for when the time comes where I'm making productions that aren't related to womanly i do sleep <laughs> but i use every single minute that i'm not sleeping and not drinking <laughs> what is it we were talking in another interview about how the idea of hobbies isn't real um, thank you i was about to bring that up <laughs> Yeah, because it's just like any hobby really is just another form of work, but it's like almost Mm -hmm. more passionate work. Exactly. Yeah, I bought a green screen and it was just, it's huge. And it's like the 
the width of my apartment, <laughs> which is insane. <laughs> yeah, it, it's huge. And I bought a camera and a, and a tripod. And I, you know, I call myself doing these projects. I never have time or energy or space, but somehow I want to do it. And it, I just do it when I can. Mm-hmm. So I try to keep it fun. If it, if it starts to feel like too much work, I just, I like, I, I, I can back away from it. And that's, that feels good because I don't have that with womanly and I don't have that with Planned Parenthood or music. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I don't have a chance to back away from those things, mm-hmm. but with the Dorothy, I, I, I can let it sit for a little while, which is nice. Yeah. It's nice to have something that you can be a little bit more playful with, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, especially with all the things that you have going on. It's nice to have that little bit of lightness. I feel mm-hmm. in your day to day. Yeah. You talk about wanting to be in a lot of these leadership roles, being able to make the guidelines and have things work how you want them to is like important to you. So do you feel like sometimes when you're a leader, you also have to educate a lot? If that does happen, how does that affect you? Does it wear you down more? I mean, I guess it it depends on what you mean by education. So if I'm teaching by doing, if I'm working on womanly and like, sharing my my knowledge through just being a leader Mm -hmm. then it's not exhausting it's just like I'm doing what I'm doing and I appreciate you you know learning from it or watching it but it is a lot of work to like I run a group of 45 plus volunteers and you know they're all doing a lot of different things and they all have a lot of different skill levels in there but there is one vision for womanly that I think has to be communicated across a lot of people. So that's hard. That's um, where I have to kind of feel, where I feel responsible for helping people understand centering on the mission and how to be a good person within a community that is focused on inclusivity and equity and leading a group of people to be respectful in a community. I mean, we definitely have a good process for like finding people and making sure that they're respectful, but I also wanna make sure I'm constantly cultivating a community and a space, whether that's online or internally or whatever. I wanna make sure that space feels all inclusive. And that's not just like women, that's like, I want trans women to feel included. I want non-binary folks to feel included. I want disabled people to feel included. And, you know, that's not something that I've mastered. It's not been overnight and I'm still figuring that out. But I am constantly trying to build a community that fosters that mentality of constantly striving for inclusivity. Where do you feel like that comes from? Like that part of your requirement that you want it to be that inclusive are there any certain parts of your life where you saw something where that didn't happen and you're like I don't want that like I want to make sure as many people are involved as possible oh yeah absolutely I mean I've always felt like a bit of an outcast in school and just in general I've never felt like a part of something I've always felt kind of like I was walking on the outskirts And that was very evident in the way I, you know, my sense of humor in school and the things I wanted to do versus what other people wanted to do. And that, that, you know, went into some name calling or being made fun of. And, you know, oh, you listen to this music. Oh, you're lighter skinned. You know, I went to all black school and that was that was tough. People kind of 
decide what they want to decide about you. And, mm-hmm. and at that point in my life, I was still trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted. And I, I just knew that what I wanted wasn't in front of me. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I was constantly looking for something for a group of people or for something. And, I, and I, maybe I'm still there. Sometimes I like to go visit that place. Mm-hmm. But I wanted the community that I'm in to feel like if you're there, if you're that person who just can never figure things out, that I wanted you to be included in this. Because I just feel like often it's easy to get left behind in our society, which I, you know, I have a lot of privilege in a lot of ways. So it's also my way of saying, I want you to feel welcome. If you've never felt welcomed anywhere, I want you to feel welcome here. Um, I felt like that at Girls Rock. That's where like the idea came from. Honestly, Mm -hmm. like having that group of volunteers who said, come as you are, do not apologize for who you are and express yourself as, as you feel, as you Mm -hmm. choose. So I really took that and ran with it. I did. I, I just, I, it moved me because everyone was so understanding and accepting and I never experienced that in my life before. Um, and it worked. Everyone was passionate. Everybody got the work done. It was so inspiring to me. So I really credit a lot of the success we've had at Womanly as an all-volunteer org to being at Girls Rock and Girls Rock Philly and being able to experience that love and that community. Well, the last question I have is kind of one that is about the future where, you know, what do you hope for with your personal goals, your personal work, and kind of a broader human nature hope? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to take Womanly to the next level. We're planning Mm -hmm. to do a lot more outreach. And I think every day I'm learning how to reach people in new ways or Mm -hmm. old ways. But I I, I would like to be able to spread this health information as as efficiently as possible, uh, reach as many people as we can in communities that need us, Mm -hmm. um, and allow people to share their stories in new ways. As much as possible, I want to raise funding to keep this going, but I also would love to do womanly full time. I think when when that happens, I'll be able to really take it to another level because I'll have more time to spend on it full time. You know, I want I want to play music as much as I can. I want to release more albums. I want to get this one out. <laughs> it seems like um, you know the longest album making process in the world, but it'll happen. <laughs> It will happen and (laughs) it's coming along. It's happening. The pandemic threw it off a little bit, but it is coming along. And that concludes another episode. You can find Atiyah on Instagram at Atiyah, A-T-T-I-A. Check out her magazine, Womanly Mag, on all social media at Womanly Mag that is currently taking pre-orders for the high blood pressure special issue with a special focus on the city of Baltimore. It is a collaboration with Maryland Institute College of Art, MFA, and Illustration Practice. A link to this can be found on our website and the show notes. Her art and design journal and production house, The Dorothy, is www.thedorothy.co. 
Music today was provided by a day's band, Full Bush. You can find Creatives on Deck on any podcast streaming platform and on Instagram at Creatives on Deck. Got a question? Send us an email, creativesondeck at gmail.com. See everybody next week. <laughs>